When We Fell Apart is the debut novel from author Soon Wiley. At first appearance, the story begins as a mystery when expat Korean-American Min Jin Ford launches an investigation to seek out the truth behind the death of his girlfriend. Was it suicide or was it murder? This novel unfolds to be more as it brings readers to the intersection of race, nationality, and duality of identity. Soon speaks with us about how his novel came to be and how his time spent teaching in Korea found its way into the book. Stay tuned for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And we are so excited for our guests today. They are our fiction pick for the month of May, which is our AAPI coverage. Which is my month. Hello. Time to turn up. Um, and so we are so blessed to have him on our show today. We are joined by none other than debut writer Soon Wiley. Uh, he is a native of Nyack, New York. Uh, he has received his BA in English and Philosophy from Connecticut College. He holds an MFA in Creative Writing from Wichita State University. His writing has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and earned him fellowships in Wyoming and France. He resides in Connecticut with his wife and their two cats. Welcome to the show, Sue. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. This is really exciting for us. We always love it when we have a, a new writer that is willing to come and talk to us about their book. Congratulations on your on your debut. It, it's been out in, in the world for just a little while. How does it feel? Uh, it feels good. I, uh, I just got back from Chicago a couple of days ago, so there's been a lot of traveling around. Thankfully, uh, I've been able to travel a little bit and talk to folks, and so... Um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't quite feel real yet, but um, it's nice to walk by bookstores and see the book there. So it's starting to, it's starting to sink in. That has to be an awesome experience of like seeing your work out and being able to talk to people about it. Have you um, only been to Chicago? Has that been the only place you've gone to? Um, so we had a couple, we had a couple events uh, here in Connecticut. And then um I went out to Kansas because that's where I did my MFA. So I was in Wichita. And to get to Wichita, you have to connect through Chicago. There are no direct, not many direct flights from New York to Kansas. So um, on my way back, I stopped in Chicago. So um, so that's been really great. And then I'm going to head down to Baltimore and D.C. at the end of this week. Oh, wow. Everybody's going to be in Baltimore area. <laughs> it's the place to be. Oh, yes, for sure. Definitely Baltimore and D.C. So what we're going to do is uh, Denny and I have written a few um, just starter questions, a little, you know, no uh, pressure. appetizer, if you will. 
<laughs> so I'm going to hand it over to Denny to take this away. So we just, you know, like to ask, you know, so we want to know more a little bit about you. And, you know, since it's AAPI, we're celebrating the Asians <laughs> this month. Yeah. Um, so and clearly this book is about, you know, your relationship with Korea. So it's just a little bit um, of like um, fast questions about Korea. So question number one, what food reminds you of Korea? Mm, it's got to be kimchi, probably just right off the bat. Um, I lived in Korea for, for a year and for breakfast every day, kimchi with rice, which is not something you usually uh, eat for breakfast in the States. So it's got to be kimchi. Was there a certain place where you would get it from or was it? Where um, it was it was honestly, you know, it was just you'd have like cold rice in the morning that you would make. Um and then, you know, you'd have some in the fridge. But yeah, if you're in a rush, you know, you can grab anything from a Korean convenience store. And I lived above a convenience store, which was really convenient. <laughs> <laughs> and probably very yummy. Yeah, um, yeah. The memory, number two, the memory that you treasure the most when reminiscing about Korea. Hmm. I don't know. Is my mom going to listen to this podcast? I'd probably say when I was there, you could still smoke indoors. Um, and there used to be this incredible, uh, I, I'm sure it's still there, but I used to also live across the street from this record LP music bar. So in Korea, they have a lot of these bars where it's just lined with old records. You go in, you order some drinks, the more expensive drink you order, the more songs you can pick. Um, and so, you know, you would just like, you know, ask to put a Miles Davis album on, on play and then you could just hang out have some drinks smoke some cigarettes still indoors um not that i was even a smoker but it just felt very retro and cool at the time although i'm sure i was doing irreparable damage to my to my lungs <laughs> that's such a like a, a writer's life you know i always see writers just like this is my cigarette this is my my typewriter let me get down to it and yeah I, i'm sure that was a part of it that i was somehow you know delusionally living out some cliched fantasy um you know meanwhile i probably should have just been writing instead of hanging out at a bar we we when we when me and my husband went to japan he found this like jazz bar that is exactly like that and, you know, we would, we would just be hanging out there. At, we would be so tired from walking from like the whole day. And we would always go to this place and he would just play songs for you, whatever you order. And then, like you said, the more expensive it is, the more tracks you can play, <laughs> but it was a cool environment. Was there yeah. like, a like, if you, um, there, there was, but again, I mean, there was like an element of, there was like a real power dynamic too at the bar because like the more expensive drink you bought, basically the more like veto power you had. And of course there was, it was democratic and that if people requested stuff, but um, a lot more fun than a jukebox. That That's for sure. <laughs> um, number three, the biggest learning as a teacher in Korea. Hmm. Probably that you don't have to do everything perfectly. I taught, I think I taught six to seven classes a day um, when I was there. So at that rate, it's just about like survival. You just, you gotta, you gotta get through. And I also taught at private school in Korea. So private school is after public school. So pri public school goes from about like 
you know, 8.30 to 2. And then private school starts around 3 or 4, and it goes until 10. Um, so, yeah, I was working from around, like, 3.30 to 10. So at that point, it was like, I just got to get get by. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's some hours right there. So that's normal time, like, for people to go to school to, late into the evening? Yeah, super normal. So, you know, and it's also a money thing. So to go to private school, it costs money, but most kids will go to, you either have English and history, it's called Hagwon. So you have English and history, Hagwon is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then you have science and math, Hagwon, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Um, or you have like some sports or something like that, but that's pretty typical for most uh, Korean kids. Oh, wow. Number four, the thing that you miss the most from home when you went to Korea. Oh man, I really missed pizza. That was like, you know, pizza and um, yeah, it was mostly pizza, but all all like tomato related, like pasta, pasta, red sauce. Um, the worst part is that there is pizza in Korea, but of course it doesn't taste like actual pizza. They really like like sweet tomato sauce. Um, but, you know, you would get to a point where you would just miss it so much, you would get it. But then, you know, you're still hoping it tastes like an actual pizza, but it, but it never did. Um, so that was, that was tough being there for a year and, and not having any pizza. <laughs> that is Veronica's love language. Yes, pizza. I love some pizza. I wouldn't know what to do if I couldn't find any. Um, so this last question is my question. So uh, in your bio, we said that you live in Connecticut with your wife and your two cats. So I wanted to know of the two cats, which one is your favorite and why? <laughs> Man. Man, no one's going to be able to listen to this to this podcast. Um, <laughs> well, so we basically we each have our own cat. That's that's really the the truth of the matter. Um, so there is Beignet, who uh, she's probably my cat. She's a long hair cat, but she's actually here right now. She's hanging out. Um, and then Butters is her cat. So, but I don't know. To be honest, like even though Butters is not my cat, he he has all the qualities of a. <laughs> of a superior cat mostly because he like isn't a nightmare to take to the vet and he isn't uh you know he's very much the submissive cat in in the household so he's not much of a troublemaker whereas my cat is like a nightmare to deal with <laughs> i hope i didn't just start any drama with your cat. yeah no it's okay there's there's always some drama going on <laughs> but it's walking around like i knew it <laughs> So um, as we get ready to dive into some questions about your book, uh, When We Fell Apart, will you just give the people a little bit of a a short synopsis uh, about your your debut? Yeah, sure. So um, the the novel essentially follows the the protagonist's name is Min. So he's kind of just graduated from college. He's not very pleased with his job. He's, uh, you know, that he has gone to New York for and he's he's Korean American. He's also biracial. And so he decides to go to South Korea to take a job in Seoul. Um, I think partly, partly in an effort to find a career, but also kind of, you know, maybe hoping to connect with something in his past with his culture. Um, And he meets a girl there, they end up dating, but the book opens with her dying under mysterious circumstances or their 
the detective is breaking the news to him that she's died. Um, and the detectives are very certain that it's suicide, but, but Min is, uh, Eugene, his girlfriend is, he's kind of in shock, but also in disbelief because everything was kind of going along fine and everything was perfect. And there was nothing that would indicate that, that anything was wrong. Um, and the book is told in alternating perspectives. So Min's stories, his chapters begin with the news of her death. And Eugene's chapters start um, actually well before she meets Min. So before she's in college when they when they meet, but her chapters start when she's actually in high school. So um, and it kind of toggles back and forth. So Min is kind of trying to find out what's happened to her um, in his chapters. And then Eugene is kind of revealing, slowly revealing the truth of of what really happened in her chapters. This novel is very much multi-layered. You're dealing with identity. You're dealing with romance. You're dealing with um, a, little bit a of mystery. mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think that this would be the first story that would be your debut as a, as a writer? Is this what you imagine for yourself? I, to be honest, I didn't imagine anything. I feel like I feel like imagining, I mean, imagination is good, but imagining success can be dangerous. So I, I, when I was working on the book, I, I like always told myself it wasn't going to get published. And, you know, you kind of have to play that magic trick on yourself, or at least I did that. Yes, I was working on it. I hoped that it would get published one day, but, you know, to write really like honestly and about the things you want to write about, for me, at least I had to just pretend no one was ever going to read it. Um, even like up until the moment it came out, it was like, it's fine. Everything's fine. No one's going to read it. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when I started it, I, I started out thinking about wanting to write a book that I would want to read. Um, and I think as a reader, I've always been interested in books that are romantic but dramatic and literary and have literary merit but also contain like some of the genre stuff that you know we consider like non-literary so whether that's romance or whether that's mystery or suspense or all those things so I was interested in kind of like combining some of those some of those genres and some of those ideas so um and I think the the layered aspect that you had mentioned that's probably because I just worked on the book so many over so many years. So if you revise something for so long, eventually it just gets all these layers just because you're constantly going back and changing things. What would you say in the midst of like you writing this novel? And like you said, it, it took you several years to, to put to, how many, first of all, how many? Um, seven, seven years total. Seven wow. years. So it, it's taken you seven years to create this, this beautiful masterpiece of yours. <laughs> and you. it has all of these layers. Um, was there ever anything in the book that went upon, you know, the editing process that, okay, we have to remove this layer? Or did everything that you wrote kind of showed up? No, I mean, so much got cut. Like, I, I don't know if you guys remember the the scenes with Min's job where he's like, so Min's job is that he explains Western culture to Korean employees so that they can like basically sell American stuff. Um, and there are a bunch of scenes where he's basically his job is to like watch reality television with Koreans and explain it to them. Um, 
I think there were like chapters upon chapters of that stuff in the initial drafts of the book. Um, mostly because I just thought it was humorous, but at some point it didn't, it didn't match the the tone of the book. Um, and there were also a lot more scenes of um, like men going and hanging out at bars and like, I don't know. I mean, and I think again, it's like as a writer, like maybe you want to go and hang out and socialize at a bar. So then your characters end up doing that, or at least that's <laughs> what I think was happening with me. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of things that I think kind of ended up on the, on the cutting room floor, so to speak, or, or they're still there, but they're just like really condensed. So instead of like 40 chapters of something, I've got like two, two pages. Mm -hmm. So we know Min is the main character of the story, but Eugene's character for us was the driving force of the book. How did you successfully make a very complex character? Hmm. So I guess this, I mean, this goes back to your earlier question, Veronica, the, um, when I wrote the book, initially, the first draft of the book was only from Min's perspective. And like Eugene was a character, all the kind of same plot points happened, but we never got her point of view. And then when I finished the book, um, I kind of realized that we needed to hear Eugene's voice. And I thought she was also just an interesting character. And I kind of realized that I hadn't taken full, full advantage. So I, I had of course been writing about her the whole time in that initial draft, she'd been a major character and, you know, I described her and thought about her a lot and she'd had lines of dialogue. Um, but basically I set Min's chapters aside and then I just started writing with the idea that I would eventually combine the chapters or alternate them. I basically started writing Eugene's like a new book, basically. So it was all from Eugene's perspective. Um, and I, I think that that character at least came a little bit easier to me because I had already been kind of thinking about her for a year and a half or so. Um, but I also, I, I don't know, like I, I found her, writing her chapters were, um, this is, I, I should say this with a grain of salt, like significantly easier to me than Min's sections. Like it felt more natural to me. It was also written in first person. Um, there was something very like magnetic about her voice. So there was this like sense of, um, velocity to like the story that she was telling. Um, and that was honestly just something that happened when I was writing it. I, I, I wasn't really, I was very happy that it, that it was easier than it was for writing min sections. I think the other like craft point is just that Eugene doesn't really have to like, the plot doesn't really rest on her. She just gets to kind of tell her story. And as a writer, the only thing I have to do is make sure she doesn't tell too much. But for Min, there's all sorts of like narrative. He's the one that has to kind of, search for the answers and find the clues and connect the dots so there's a lot more like plot weight on his um on his chapters so Eugene gets to have kind of all the fun mm. I could definitely tell with Eugene like what you were saying of how easy it was for you to write her there was definitely something different about her her voice which is good especially when you're writing characters who are you know different genders you want mm -hmm. them to really sound different than who you know you're writing the story and the main person is being this guy right and I think you 
perfectly executed her, especially in the very beginning where she's, you know, revealing to us that she's ready to go and venture out and, and make her own life. And I can understand that of like wanting to escape and just, you know, find your own path and be who you want to. That part really resonated with me a lot. What, how were they revealing themselves to you when you sat down to write them? So I, I tend to, to kind of freewheel when I write. I don't like I, I will outline a little bit, but I really, when it comes to character, I'll, I'll kind of jot down like, you know, kind of where they're from or, you know, what they're into, what types of food they like, very like kind of rough character sketches. But um, then I, I just kind of go for it and I go wherever the wherever the character takes me is kind of where I go. And it's not it's not a very efficient way to work because there's a lot of stuff that I have to go back and cut and edit. And it's it's now being revealed why it took me seven years to write the book. Um, but I definitely just kind of follow my nose and like wherever wherever the character takes me is kind of where I'm willing to go. Um, and for for Eugene's character, it it just became you know, and, and I think this isn't, it's something that is definitely a, a point of emphasis in Korean culture, but I think it's a, it's a feeling that almost probably every teenage girl can kind of relate to, or boy, right, in when you're growing up in that household with suffocating parents with really kind of high expectations, that's a very kind of like universal desire. Um, Similar to Min's, I, I think, um, I mean, maybe his his case is a little bit more specific because he's biracial, but um, I think all of us can probably relate to that feeling of being an outsider in, in some respect. And, um, but also even probably more interesting is like feeling like an outsider in some situations, but then feeling like an insider in others and, and not kind of, I mean, a lot of his story is about being in this kind of in-between space and what you do when you, when you don't occupy a specific space, how do you kind of navigate that? Um, and his, his character, I don't think revealed itself himself to me as, as kind of quickly as Eugene did. I, I kind of, it took me a lot longer to work on his chapters. But I think, you know, like Min's character is was also very relatable um, I think he showed like a very vulnerable part of himself that not a lot of like characters might be willing to do that like from the very beginning like because when you know when he like you were very vocal about like how you wrote about him and like I'm dissatisfied I wanted to do this and then it the tone didn't change when he realized that like oh my girlfriend is dead it's like he stayed like on that like bar I guess of like opening up and just wanting to know more mm. so um what was the goal for you for Min when allowing him to move in the story that the way that um he did so I think um probably two different levels one there's kind of like the plot level which is that he he was kind of like the perfect and I mean most protagonists are often like this they're they're perfect for this but when you have a protagonist that possesses the ability to see things the way that no one else could, right? And whether that's because of their gender or their ethnicity or their social class, but they have an interesting take on whatever world you've created, right? Um, 
And so for me, like Min was kind of this perfect vehicle into South Korean culture or Korean culture that he, he can move like amongst it, but he's never going to be completely in it. And every time that he's reminded that he's not in it, I think that offers like the reader a chance to kind of see something interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I also, it was also again on a craft point, like there was no shortage of kind of points of conflict, right? Things that would stop him from um, trying to find out the truth, right? So, you know, he wants closure, he wants to go to her funeral, but wait a minute, you know, there's a roadblock there, right? He, he doesn't know her parents or he doesn't even know what a Korean funeral is. He doesn't know where it's held. So on that kind of, uh, from when I was writing it, I was, I was very aware that he would, he's kind of a nice protagonist in the sense that there are so many things that he has to overcome to try to get to his immediate goal. Um, but I, I also, I also was very interested in him being in denial and not about her death, right? In that a lot of the book is interested in perception and and what do you do when what you perceive to be true Mm -hmm. is kind of proven wrong, right? So if you if you think that someone is a really good person, you've met them, you've talked to them, they're your closest friend, et cetera, but then somehow it's revealed that they actually aren't this great person, how do you reconcile Basically, what that means is what you perceive to be true is not, which is a very disconcerting thing, because that's how we function. We perceive things and then we like deduce these facts from it. So for men, it's this very kind of like there's this moment of dissonance. Like I thought everything was fine and I have like the receipts to prove it. Right. I we, we were dating. Everything was fine. She never said anything. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of what I was interested in also presenting him with that kind of really hard moment where he has to come to grips with um, maybe what he perceived to be true is perhaps not, not the case. There's something powerful when like that statement of thinking about what secrets are revealed, if any, when someone passes away. And being left to have to reconcile with that and make trying to make sense of all of that. And I think within this book, you really touch based on what it is to deal with a secret and how your response could establish like where you what you do next, what your next step is. This this book, I hate that this book just came out because I want to spoil it so bad. <laughs> because there are other questions that we have, but we'll we'll just keep with what we got. But I know it's uh well, you guys were asking earlier about what what some of the conversations have been like. So like multiple times during events, I've had to be like, please don't, you know, because half the room will have read the book and the other half won't. So I know it's really difficult to talk about the book um without without kind of spoiling things. But um, hey, so- that's like you know, good promotion right there to get people. To that's go true. That's it. true. Yeah. You have to find out. So you're going to be, you're going to same share the same bubble <laughs> as I do. Cause I have a lot of feelings about it, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so that's pod- um, podcast number two. Yes. <laughs> uh, the book uh, tells the story of a young man who's searching for this sense of belonging. And this searching is, is partly wrapped in this web of history that comes from the pain and struggle of when Korea and Japan is mentioned. 
Um, how did you get to a place where you wanted to include this narrative of reckoning with one's past and the past of men's family within this story? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great, really good question. Um, I'm not a historian, so naturally I was like very reticent to, I don't know, include a lot of that stuff. And I also admittedly am not a big historical fiction guy, so I also am more interested in characters. But I think I reached, at some point I realized when I had finished the book, I was like, there is actually a lot of historical stuff in here. Um, so I better like go back and fact check some of these things. Um, and it's kind of impossible. It became impossible to set the story in Seoul, to write about this biracial Korean guy who comes from the States, who's in Seoul. It became impossible basically to not think about the historical kind of facts on the ground and to mention it. I mean, I think, you know, probably the the two single most impactful moments, well, I don't know, but some might argue, right, but the the Japanese occupation of Korea and then the Korean War, both of those things kind of have a really outsized effect on um, on the characters in the book. Um, it, it affects kind of Eugene's family um, and kind of the way that her her father is and the way her mother is, and that it also affects, you know, the reasons why Min is in, even in Korea, right? That his ancestors decided to to leave Seoul or to leave South Korea and come to the States or go to Hawaii and then to the States. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's something that even when I was there, right? Like the war is, the Korean war actually isn't over. It, they haven't actually called a truce, right? It's like, they've agreed to like a ceasefire. Um, so even that is very you know, when I was there, you're kind of a, aware of it in that sense that, you know, the country's still divided. So there is this sense of, of history kind of almost not being complete. Um, and, you know, I think the, the war in Ukraine, I, I think was kind of similarly like interesting along those lines, um, just bringing to mind, right, how a country can go from being a whole country to maybe being a country that's divided or that's being conquered by, by one country or another. Um, so I, I also, as I was writing it, I, I realized that, you know, the country's kind of divided, it's in this liminal space, and then Min is also divided between these things. So a lot of the book, and again, none of this was on purpose, I just kind of realized that after the fact, this was what I was interested in. But this idea of being like bifurcated, that you're cut into two things, or you're forced to kind of hold these two ideas of yourself. Um, all of that stuff kind of bubbled up to the surface, whether I whether I wanted to write about it or not. <laughs> I, I particularly like anytime anyone brings up duality in within mm. a novel like to show no matter if what what ends that they uh work it out be it if it's race or class or whatever um and in chapter seven you have men reflecting on his motivation to move to south korea and this feeling of not belonging anywhere was a prevalent thread throughout the book which you know we, we spoke on so on um, page 61 he talks about having to learn an entirely new vocabulary when attending parties with his colleagues words such like uh nantucket or bocce 
uh, it stems from a language that is not only rooted in a culture of whiteness, but also one of money. Will you speak to us about the inclusion of this particular marker of privilege and how it pertains uh, to men's persistent feeling of this not belonging? Yeah. Um, well, so I, you know, I grew up, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Nyack, which is kind of just outside, um, just outside the city. Although probably people in the city would think, you know, I live upstate in the sticks, uh, or I grew up in the sticks, but it is, it is fairly close to the city. Um, and I, you know, I went to college in Connecticut and I remember sitting, you know, I went to a very large public high school and I remember sitting in class and I just became very aware that there were, that everyone else was like on another level than me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it turned out that those people had gone to places like Choate or Deerfield or all of these really great prep schools in New England. But it, that was like a, a, my first real wake up call, right? That there were, I wasn't even really that great of a student, but I was really behind kind of because I hadn't gone to these, um, to these kind of upper echelon schools. But there was also that cultural aspect. I mean, I wasn't even in those circles, but I was very aware that there was a, a culture and a language, right, that was kind of beyond my grasp, right? I mean, we were all speaking English, but they were speaking a, a totally different language. Um, but I think specifically for Min, because he's from California, um, and this is just something I've observed, that a lot of Asian people from California that come to New York or New England are just like in shock because they're not surrounded by Asian people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and compared to a place like LA, right. Or UCLA or USC, if you, you know, there, it feels as if there are no Asian people around. Um, and so I think for men, that's a very real introduction, right. To like, not everywhere is like LA, right. And you're not going to, you're not going to always be surrounded by, um, either Asian cultures or people that are comfortable with Asian cultures. Um, but class is also there, right? I mean, that's something that he's kind of reckoning with. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, class is a lot more important and prominent in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's the oldest part of our country. So it makes sense that, you know, it's also where all the old money is. It's also where, you know, you've got, I don't know, people like the Vanderbilts and all of the, the railroad barons and all of that stuff. I mean, all of that stuff kind of intersects in a way that it's really hard to, to kind of just talk about one thing. Um, but yeah, I, I remember writing, writing that chapter and uh, it was fun choosing like the words that he was unfamiliar with because there are so many, um, you know, and and it's a very unique kind of, you know, vocabulary that signifies a type of thing that I think for men and probably for a lot of people is just like totally alien and foreign. I, I've that particular moment in the book resonated with me because I've had that experience of like taking out my phone. Oh, yes. And looking up, what is this that they're talking about so I can contribute to the conversation? Because it is something where you know that there is a whole nother level of exposure that some people are able to gain in, within life because they have money, right? Or, you know, that they've just been given this experience. So that that part really like 
got me. I you, got that. You Google. I just go to the bathroom. I'm be like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> I just, I just, I, I just need to freshen up. BRB, <laughs> but never come back. So when you teach in Korea, you, you, you said it in your, you know, um, in your like little package for like the book clubs that. You had to go by your legal name, Nathaniel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, you were told that it was important for your students to see you as American. Um, and that just, like, kind of, like, hurt my heart a lot. The feeling of being an outsider in your supposedly country of origin is more disheartening and confusing for somebody to trying, you know, for, for somebody trying to find a sense of belongingness. At least that's how I felt. Um, how was that experience coming back to Korea? Um, probably sometimes, even though, you know, it would be hard. Was it also gratifying in some ways? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the, the kind of conundrums that men, well, I, I don't know about men, but I think certainly now, like, it's it's cool to be Asian and it's cool to be Korean and, you know, everyone knows BTS and you can, like, eat Korean food without people being like, that's gross. Or why does like your house smell terrible? Like every white person knows what kimchi is like, that's crazy. Um, or almost, I shouldn't say that almost every white person. Um, and so for, for me, I think when I, when I went there, it was, it was honestly, I mean, I think probably on reflection, yeah, pretty, pretty upsetting, but when I got there, I just thought it was just the funniest. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You know, here I was, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, I, I have a weird name, right? Like soon is not a normal name if you're on the playground or in, if you're in kindergarten. And so I was so looking forward to like going to Korea and using my name. But but actually, my name is the my full name is Soon Nam, but it's like really old fashioned. It's like, you know. Beatrice or like Rupert or Isabel, like it's like it's Gertrude. really yeah, like it's like basically a Gertrude. Um, I was trying to think of like a of guy, but it. So when I would tell people my full Korean name, I mean they would just die laughing. They'd be like, "No one is named that anymore," you know, um, which is a very common thing. Often that that the kids, children of like like third or fourth generation, if they have that name, that's a native name to their culture, it's often. Like their parents aren't in the loop, right? They're using names that were cool, like back in the day. Um, and yeah, I remember when my boss was like, look, you got to go by Nathaniel, you know, and, and there is this reverence in Korea. There is a reverence, a resentment and a reverence for American culture, right? That if as an American, you're seen as more attractive, you're tall, you're handsome, right? You have really quote unquote beautiful features like all of that stuff is very real um but there's also i think what's weird now is that that's like now reversing somehow in the states people are talking about how bts and whatever korean beauty products all that stuff but at least when i was there i was very aware that there was that reverence of like western kind of um aesthetics and um but there's also resentment on the other end right like resentment from from a lot of Koreans, I think about, you know, the U.S., the fact that the U.S. has bases there, the fact that um, I definitely, I mean, Min, this is mentioned in, I think, one of Min's chapters, but there was a, a very real tension of, of a, I think, a sense among Koreans 
they felt as if right Americans were, you know, quote unquote, stealing their, you know, stealing their men or stealing their women, right? Because there's this feeling of, I, I just, there was such a, as a white dude, you just have a lot of power walking around in, in Korea and there's, and and it isn't subtle at all. It is, it is very real and it's very in your face. I mean, and I kind of like flew under the radar, thankfully, because some people like no one would really know. They would just be like, eh, I'm not sure, um, which is great. Like I, I, I'll take that any day of the week. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely a little bit. Um, shocking, I think, to to be to come into that kind of place, to be excited to kind of, OK, I'm going to embrace my you know heritage. This is it. Um, of course, it never works out that way. And I think if, if anyone has that experience of going back to, you know, their country of origin or where their parents are from, and, you know, you're so hopeful in that moment, you're going to be greeted with open arms, everything's going to make sense, you know, your life's finally going to be figured out. Uh, usually, you're like setting yourself up for, for, for disaster. <laughs> um and usually the response is, you know, and wherever you go, right? If if you're Indian, if you're Pakistani, whatever, you go back and you go, yeah, I'm blah blah, and you know, you pretty much guarantee the net the person that's a native, you know, of that country is going to say, mm, no, you're not, you're American, like you're, you, we have nothing in common, right? I mean, that's kind of like an initial gut reaction you often get. Yeah, I I grew up in the Philippines, but I spent most of my twenties here, and I I still live here up to now and every time I would go back they would immediately tell me that oh you've changed you're American Mm -hmm. now but I'm like I grew up here like I can speak the language I know like tenses like I know like fluent in writing speaking and drawing Filipino what are you what are you talking about but well yeah and I I think that's what's interesting is like how we differentiate like Cause I think there's like ethnically and then there's like national, right? Like then what, what you're talking about is like culturally, it's like, okay, like, yeah, sure. You're ethnically Filipino, but like culturally you're American. And that's almost like a bigger, a bigger deal, right? Yeah. That in a weird way in America, I think it's totally the opposite, right? Like it's about your ethnicity, like what you are, but I think another, you know, in the, in your case of the Philippines and same thing as Korea, right? That you could be full full-blooded ethnically Korean but like if you grew up in Canada it's like oh no you're Canadian you're not not Korean at all there uh was a part in you talking about like how Americans have like a look to BTS or even like the Korean facial treatments you Mm -hmm. know they are seeing this as a good thing and it's to me it feels like a uh a vulture-like aspect of American culture because you might be like trying to strip something away from this culture that you think is so amazing and good which it is you know bts is awesome but when you look and see what harm is being done to asian people on a regular basis because of them being asian especially now as we're going through the pandemic it, it just is this huge hypocrisy that exists within our country um and it, it it's quite annoying. I was talking to Denny earlier about, I don't know if I wasn't paying attention in history class <laughs> or uh, it just wasn't taught. But a lot of the things that I'm learning now, especially in regards to Korea, I'm finding through, you know, 
television or or books or films. And so, I, you know, the first thing that comes to mind uh, would probably be for me um, is Kim convenience store. And you mm-hmm. have this main character who's the father who has this like, you know, this utter hatred of Japan. Right. And not quite understanding it because I didn't pay attention of what was this. And so seeing this being brought out more like in shows like Pachinko and mm-hmm. really realizing like, oh, okay, this, this, this is, this is deep. This is heavy. And then as Americans, when we look to Japan, we look at it as this that magnificent space where, um, you know, you have anime and you, you know, Toyota, Honda, <laughs> all the cars and the phones and Super Mario Brothers. And it's this mm-hmm. magnificent place that people want to go and visit, but not really diving in on, wait a minute, not just too long ago, there, there was this horrific war that just tore this country mm-hmm. of, of Korea apart. Let's talk about that. Let's dive into that. And there's this something about how we choose to pick and choose what is good and highlight those things and disregard the most important parts about what it is either what we're doing to someone or what was done to someone and that we are totally not regarding in that instance and so this was something that I you know was thinking about when when reading this book and watching men like just go through this process of just finding where he was where his center where he wanted to be uh, within this story. Um, and I'm just curious, I just wish I could know like what happens to him later on in life. I wish we well, could. Get- I mean, just to, to touch on your point, like, and Denny probably, you know, you're Filipino, like, you know, when people talk about World War II, everyone just thinks about Nazi Germany. Like, that's just like automatic. That was in Europe. But, and even I think like I have sympathy, you know, and a lot of, I, I think, and again, I'm not a historian, but American soldiers, like their experience of coming back from the Pacific, coming back to the States and people just being like, they didn't care. Like, oh, did you defeat the Nazis? Like they didn't care that they were in the Philippines. They didn't care that they were in Guam. They didn't care that they were, you know, I mean, even the minimization of like white Americans experience in World War II, simply because they were fighting right in the Pacific and not like on the, the European continent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all like, even for me, like that, I mean, certainly I didn't learn about that stuff in, in history class. Um, but anyway, I interrupted your, your question. And I have forgotten it. <laughs> Sorry, that's my fault. But I, I, I wanted to say, you know, like, I'm just curious as to what would, what would men's life look oh, like? Yes you know, at the, at the end of this story of him, you know, venturing off to wherever he ventures off to (laughs) very hard. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, like, where where is he in regards to who he is as a full person? Is he still existing in this dual state? Or is, do you feel like he is more solid on understanding his whole self? if that doesn't no no I I yeah and I I don't even think like I I think we can talk about where he ends up I don't think that that spoils anything um you know the the truth is probably for people like men right that kind of check so many different boxes of identity 
you know, I think those, those people, and, you know, I'll, I'll say men specifically, like that sense of belonging is probably one that is more of like a fleeting sense, right? It's something that you feel at certain times, but not at other times. But I think the important thing for men and is, is a realization that, and again, I don't think I'm ruining anything that the realization that he comes to at the end of the book, right. Which is like, maybe it's not about finding these specific things that resolve your issues or, you know, finding the, the, the specific family artifact that suddenly makes sense of your life. It's more about like, did you try, did you, you know, did you try to get in touch with these things? Did you try to look for a deeper sense of yourself? Um, and maybe like that, the process of searching for those things is probably more important than finding a definitive answer, right? I mean, because ultimately, right, there are no, there are no kind of definitive answers um, to those types of things. But I, I think he's okay. I think that was really what your question was about. Um, but I think he's, I think he's figured some things out. I'll say that. Oh, okay. Okay. Some reassurance. <laughs> some closure. Yeah. Uh, your novel does a tremendous job at dissecting the pressure to succeed and uh, the aftermath of one not being able to meet the expectations of family and loved ones and self is a universal issue that most young adults and it is at times suicide is the means of the release of pressure. Um, and so South Korea is a country that is grappling with a high level of suicide, especially since the start of the pandemic. And so when you sat down to write this novel, was that subject matter one you knew straight away that you wanted to write? Or was that something that got revealed to you later on? In the book, it, it's a major theme. I mean, I, I remember when I first took my first metro or my first subway ride in Seoul, um, you know, when the train comes, like it's divided, there's this plastic barrier essentially that separates the train and the platform, which is like probably something we should have in New York city by now. Um, but I remember commenting to a friend, I thought it was for like sanitary reasons. I was like, Oh, it's so nice that like, cause if you've ever been in a New York city subway, it's like, there's so much gross air that just like comes when the train comes. So I turned to my friend, I was like, it's so nice that they have this like plastic barrier like and then when the train comes those plastic doors open up directly where the train doors open up so you never actually like come into contact with the track and he kind of looked at me he was like dude that's not for like sanitary reasons that's so people don't throw themselves in front of the train um and i i just remember that really struck me as as both um like incredible foresight by the government but also like incredibly sad that that that's something that is like very real um and so yeah i i knew that i knew that it was something that i wanted to explore i mean i knew that it was dark but i i also knew that and i don't think it was in a kind of attempting to like call attention to something although certainly i hope it does um but i was personally interested in in kind of how people do get to that point um, and, and what pushes people and, and kind of what, whether they're cultural or social, um, how they get there. Um, and, and also kind of our, our reaction as, as individuals and, and then also our reaction as kind of a culture. I mean, 
uh, Anthony Bourdain died while I was working on the book. Um, and, uh, pretty much everyone's reaction was just like Min's reaction, which was like, there's no way this could happen. I, and again, of course, all the people that are talking, saying this about Bourdain don't really know him, but they all watch his TV shows and they're saying, how could this be? I, I, you know, I watched all his shows. He seemed like such a happy guy. He, he loved traveling. He loved life. Why would he ever do this? And yeah, like within a week, everyone had a different theory about why he had done it, who, you know, who pushed him over the edge? Was it his girlfriend, et cetera? So I think when we're faced with that type of tragedy, it really kind of forces us, like we're not really good as human beings with saying, well, I don't really know why that happened. And, but like, I'm okay with it. Right. Well, we're usually trying to rationalize and make sense of something. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in Korea, I mean, specifically it's tied to, you know, I think very much so kind of the academic pressure and just the cultural pressure to, to succeed. Mm. So the characters in the novel were craving for this sense of freedom that might be disguised in moving to a different place. There is a sense of relief when you start fresh in a different place. Seoul was type of, was to me another character in the novel with all of its wonders and complexities. It allowed explorations and dreams to be met. How important for the idea of freedom be expressed in different ways as seen through Eugene, Sora, Misaki, and Min? Yeah, I, I, I really liked the idea of, you know, and, and I think that we all experience this when we moved to a big city. I liked the idea that the city could represent different things for everyone. So even though they're all kind of connected in some way, whether it's romantically or, or socially, um, you know, that for men, right, Seoul is this place where he's going to finally feel grounded, right, where his life's going to make sense, where he's going to feel like he belongs, where he can find himself. Mm-hmm. But it's the opposite for Eugene. It's like, oh, this is the place where I can finally, like, get away from everything, get lost, forget about who I was. I can like reinvent the person that I was. Um, for Sora, I think, right. Um, it's, it's more about kind of like reinforcing who you were, right. If you're this like artistic spirit, the city is where you go to kind of reinforce those ideas. And then for Masaki, I think she is, is an interesting foil to men because she's also a foreigner. She's an outsider. She is viewed as very different, but whereas Min struggles with that classification, she loves it, right? She embraces it. She actually enjoys being um, kind of anonymous, right, in this city. And she likes the fact that no one knows who she is and everyone's kind of, you know, staring at her and, and et cetera. Um, so I, I very much kind of... I do feel like cities are that way, right? And, and especially places like New York and LA and sorts that, you know, you've got all of these people that are, that are in the same place, but they're all there for completely kinds of different reasons. Um, so this would be probably our second to the last question. Okay. <laughs> um, what does Han mean to Soon Wiley now? Hmm. Man, that's hard. I mean, it's such a, well, first of all, I should say that the, supposedly the word can't really be defined. Right. Um, so, you know, I think un, unresolved suffering, I, there's also some scholarly discussion about, about the use of Han because it was created 
um, supposedly by this Japanese guy to describe Koreans, which is also a little bit complicated. Anyway, that aside, um, Han, I, I think, you know, it's like, I mean, it's Ajita, right? Like it's, it's that unresolved stuff that you got in yourself. Um, and it, it does have a negative connotation, but I also think that it can be positive, right? That it can be perseverance, that it can be um, perseverance over kind of generational trauma. Um, yeah. Um, so um, we're coming to our the end of our, our interview. And I, before I ask the, the question we like to ask everybody on the show, I was just curious, is, is, will we get more mystery novels from you? Because I really like this one. And I want well, what, what do you guys want? <laughs> what, oh, it's like that. Like we just give you to just give it yeah. to, to us. <laughs> um, I well, so I should say, I mean, I I'm very much interest well actually i would be interested to know because this was something that came up in some of the places i've been when someone would say like this was a mystery novel i stayed up all night reading it but then someone invariably would be like this wasn't a mystery novel this was like a literary novel so i i am very much like interested in blending those two things i i like books that have some element of mystery in them um, and it doesn't have to be a big mystery or some kind of dramatic and crazy mystery, but um, I, I enjoy trying to kind of combine those two types of literary works. Um, and some of my favorite authors kind of have those have mysteries at, at the heart of their stories. So um, I don't know, would you guys classify this as a, as a mystery or a? I don't even know what the other classifications are. I think for me, when it comes to literature, especially just fiction in general, uh, when someone puts it in a place of like, this is a mystery or this is a romance, it kind of takes it away. I feel like it takes away from it just being a, this is a fiction book, right? Like mm-hmm. what you were saying earlier at the top of the, at the, top of the show. Yeah. And um, I think it is just one of the major elements within the book. So to me, it's like, it's fiction, but it's got, you know, this mystery mysterious element to it you know we're trying to figure out like what happened to this girl Mm -hmm. and I'm always down for like let me see if I can figure it out like and I was wrong you know like Mm -hmm. I was wrong but it was good to get to the end to find out what what happened um so I'm I you know I like a good puzzle every now and then and I think within the last two years of us doing this it has expanded what we're willing to read and so, yeah, I, I I like what you did. I don't care what you write next because I know it's going to be good. So, but I was just curious, like, are you wanting to have that more of an element within what it is that you write or? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I mean, it's, it's something I'm working on my second book right now. And it's, it's something that is, I think it's also helpful for me to have my characters kind of facing mysteries and conflicts that they need to solve. Um, so most definitely. Yeah. Cause my first, I think real book that I read as a child was Nancy Drew. Hmm. So I do have a deep love of like who done it <laughs> in my yeah. in my system. So when I was reading this I'm like, yes. You know, I I think I am more a little bit, you know, more on like the sci-fi speculative fiction type of reader. 
Um, but I do enjoy a good fiction book. And, you know, to me, fiction is fiction. It's like rice is rice, you know? As long as it's a good story, I'm, I'm down for it. I just need a good plot. If it's written well, you got me, you know? If you can All write. Right. Good can to write. know. I'm, I'm going to take it. Take note. <laughs> <laughs> so now we are at a, my particular favorite part of the conversation that we ask everybody that comes on the show, no matter if they are a writer, if they are some type of creative, we want to know what are your top five books of all time? We understand that this list might change when you get off this Zoom call. But... Or or the top five books that you're more most excited about that's coming also out this year. Mm. Or both. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So I think probably, so I, you got, I'm a high school English teacher. So I, I read a lot of old books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember when I got my agent, she was like, you got to read some more contemporary books. Um, which makes sense since I'm writing contemporary fiction. Um, so I'd have to say probably, you know, 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. That's one of my favorite books which is pretty sci-fi, a little yes, speculative. That's I'm like, yeah, I love that okay. book. <laughs> it um, took me years, but I got through it. Yeah, so that, that's a book I really love. Um, probably Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is, is a really awesome book. Um, I'm just such a sucker for old classics. So The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton um, is, is one of the, the just the most amazing books um probably jazz by tony morrison is also up there for me um and giovanni's room by james baldwin uh both books that i love to teach and is that four i think yeah okay so five i'd have to probably say um it's a novel called stoner it's not about a stoner but it's called stoner by john williams um and yeah that's an amazing book so I think those are, I think that's five. Okay. All right. What, okay. So what grade do you, do you teach in high school? Uh, this year I'm teaching 11th and 12th graders. Is it just regular English or are you doing AP honors? Um, this year I'm teaching like a lot of electives. So I'm teaching like creative writing, environmental literature. I'm at a new school this year, but before this I was teaching in DC and I taught for seven years and in DC I taught um 10th 11th and 12th grade and that's you know that's where I did the majority of my teaching um and where I kind of read the same books over and over again where are you in regards to what you offer your students to read like what does your syllabus look like for them um I think it depends on the class but for you know Right now I'm teaching a, a contemporary literature class. Um, so that's actually fun because I'm, I'm able to kind of assign books that are, so Patricia Engel was a, um, Infinite Country is a book that we read this year, um, which they really loved. And um, we also read Never Let Me Go, which is also a Kazuo Ishiguro book. Um, so yeah, it just kind of depends on what whatever class I'm teaching. That one's also speculative actually, so. That's all my hand. We had, we had Patricia here on the show and she did talk about um, Infinite Country, which we, which we yeah. love as well. But, you know, Kashuishi Girl, I, I love, I love, I love the guy. What can you say? <laughs> yeah. I love the books. Oh man. Infinite Country, that first line in that story is just like, what? It pulls you in. 
uh, that girl just like running away from the mm-hmm. place. It's just amazing. Well, uh, soon. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us and answering all of our questions. And thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. This was such a pleasure. Beautiful book and congratulations to you again. And we cannot wait to see what comes next and, and where you go after this point. And, uh, and we'll, we hope to see you on our show when yeah. you decide to release whatever book you put out. <laughs> yeah. Sounds awesome. I really appreciate you guys having me on. All right. You take care. Okay. Good night. Thanks guys. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.